Today we're going to continue on studying how awesome God is in every respect. Before we do that, I want to invite Wayne Lake to come on forward. And um, as you know, as Zach mentioned a little bit earlier, we have a members meeting coming up next week. And in the context of that, we have the privilege of voting as a congregation for some of those who help lead us, our elders and our deacons. And uh, Wayne is one who is standing to become a deacon, and uh, there's a few others who, are, who will be on the ballot, as it were. Uh, Mike Ott is very sick today. He was going to be introduced. We'll have to do that next week. He's planning to join our elder team. And then Tom Sackett and Wayne Lake uh, are looking to join the deacon team. And uh, Tom's focus will probably relate to missions and to sort of our global perspective, global outreach. And uh, Wayne is interested in helping people very practically, and he'll be the deacon who will manage our help fund as a church, which is how when, when people call for various needs or practical issues local in the community or here in our church family, uh, we engage the help fund uh, to try to meet some of those needs. And Wayne is one who is willing to uh, help us with that. And so, Wayne, maybe you could tell us, I know you've served on the leadership team here before, maybe you could tell us how long you've been a part of the church and uh, how you served prior. Okay. Um, I've been coming to the church for over 30 years. I've served on the deacon board as well as the elder board, and I've also uh, been in the church treasury for a number of years. So, been around for a while. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I, mean, I recognize that particularly the work of deacons, uh, to some extent elders, is very behind the scenes, but it's definitely not always easy. And I would say from a little bit of personal experience I've had with the help fund and things that are like that, that's not an easy job at all to take on. And so we're really grateful that you would be willing to uh, dedicate that kind of time and energy to the church, and we want to pray for you and support you as much as we can as you assume that new role, prayerfully, pending, the, of course, the vote next week. Okay. Um, so thank you so much. Good. Uh, maybe as, as you get a chance, if you don't know Wayne personally, uh, today would be a great day to get to know him a little bit after the service, ask any questions you may have about him before he uh, goes to join our leadership team in that capacity. Well, today uh, we are about halfway through our series on how awesome God is, a series that I suppose by definition could last forever because God is infinite, as we learned the first week, and we would never run out of things to talk about if we said, let's talk about God. Uh, but here our summary is to talk about God's infinity and then His eminence. Last week we talked about how excellent God is in every respect. Uh, today we are talking about God's sovereignty. Uh, that is his rule and his reign. If you think about a definition of sovereignty, I think you'd come up with something like this. It's supreme power and authority, rule over a jurisdiction, self-governing and independent. And so when you think about God and say, does God need to check in with anyone before he makes a decision? No, that means he's sovereign. Does God need to lean on someone else for help to execute his plan? No, that means God is sovereign. Sovereignty means you're self-sufficient, you're independent. And in, in principle, God is the only sovereign entity in all of the universe. Everything else depends on him, but he doesn't depend on anything else. All right, so when we're talking about sovereignty on a human level, a lot of times we apply that conversation to nation states. And so if you're watching the news and the talking heads, sometimes this will come up, if, especially if they talk about a treaty with another country or a treaty to protect something. And inevitably, one of the talking heads is going to say, hey, this treaty would threaten U.S. sovereignty. 
And what do they mean by that? They're, they're worried that somehow the U.S. would be deprived of its freedom to make any decision it wants to by tying in with that treaty. Okay, so sovereignty kind of gives you a little flavor for what it, for what it means. Uh, or someone might say, each sovereign nation has a right to its own protection. That is, if you're not sort of a, a sub-state of some other country um, and you're responsible for your own freedom, it means you also have to protect yourself. And so there again, sovereignty means you get to make the decision. You're not sort of being lorded over by someone else. Um, some nations have what they call sovereign wealth funds, which is this really crazy thing when your government runs a positive cash flow, they actually have extra money, which we would know nothing about in America. But in some countries, they actually have extra money for the future already set aside. They get to invest that. They call that a sovereign wealth fund because no one else is telling them what to do with that money. It's theirs to then sort of command as they will. Um, I remember feeling a sense of sovereignty, of national sovereignty, kind of what the emotion of that is like when I was 13 years old and my parents took us on a trip, my sister and I, to Thailand. They were thinking about being missionaries there at the time and that didn't work out, but it was still a life-changing trip for us to go and see such a different place and it was, you know, just as a 13-year-old to really get a perspective on what the bigger, wider world out there looks like. But I do remember an amazing feeling, and I don't think they do this on every international flight, but on the flight I was on, when we were approaching the coast of California on our trip back, um, the pilot came on and said, you have now entered U.S. airspace. I just remember feeling like this sense of relief. Like I wasn't under threat, you know, where I was. It was a safe place, I think. But, but there was still this sense that like when you get into the domain of your own country where you're a citizen, like you're safe. And so you can kind of take a breath and know, okay, as soon as I'm under that U.S. airspace umbrella, like I'm under the umbrella of our government and our military and our laws. And, and so like I'm, I'm back in a place where I can, I can rest. I can take comfort. Uh, as long as I'm outside of that, uh, it's not, not necessarily that comfortable because you don't quite know what will happen if someone else has authority over you. And uh, so I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but I think it's, it's an amazing thing to think about what it means to be able to come home and be in a place where you, you trust and know who's, who's the sovereign over you. All right, so here's what national sovereignty means, and then here's how it's going to apply for us today. Um, it means that you don't have to answer to a foreign leader. It means you get to make your own laws and you don't have to pay tribute to anyone. It essentially means you're independent, you are in charge. And I really think that that last phrase is sort of the, is the best way to understand what sovereignty means, both in nation states, but also when we come to it theologically. If you are looking at any situation and saying, who is in charge of this? Um, the answer is whoever is sovereign. So turn with me in the Bible to Daniel chapter 4, and we want to learn from the story of one king who his pride went to his head, his success went to his head, and he started to get the bright idea that all of his glory and majesty and all the great things he had done were really his doing, and he wasn't paying tribute to the sovereign with a capital S, the sovereign of heaven. He was starting to think that his earthly kingdom was the top. And, and in an earthly sense, we wouldn't blame him. Uh, he was the king of Babylon, the Babylonian Empire. He was sitting in probably the richest city in the world with some of the most amazing technologies and the hanging gardens and military power. I mean, he had it all. And he was looking out at this vast city, just thinking about how great the city was and then how great he was for building the city and for being the leader of such an amazing domain. 
And so here we pick up the story uh, where Nebuchadnezzar has had this frightening dream. And he calls in some interpreters and Daniel, the prophet, helps him understand his dream. But the dream doesn't fulfill until 12 months later. And that's what we see in verse 29 of Daniel 4. It says, 12 months later, he was taking a walk on the flat roof of the royal palace in Babylon. As he looked out across the city, he said, look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. And you know when people start talking like that, like the, sh the other shoe is about to drop, right? Something's going to go wrong for this guy. Um, it says, <clears throat> while these words were still in his mouth, a voice called down from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, this is a message for you. You are no longer ruler of this kingdom. Now, if, if he had time, he could have protested right there. Hold on, I'm the sovereign. Who are you, whatever voice you are, to tell me what's going to happen in my kingdom? Of course I'm the ruler. What he didn't know was that he was being addressed by a sovereign much higher than him. And here, Nebuchadnezzar is about to learn the lesson that every human being has to eventually learn. You either learn it on earth or you learn it on judgment day, that you're not the sovereign and God is. Here's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 32, you will be driven from human society. You will live in the fields with the wild animals. You will eat grass like a cow. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of this world and gives them to anyone he chooses. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar, you're only here because God is letting you be here. God is the sovereign, not you. After this time had passed, or verse 33, that same hour, the judgment was fulfilled. Nebuchadnezzar was driven from human society. He ate grass like a cow. He was drenched with the dew of heaven. He lived this way until his hair was as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. I mean, literally, he went insane out there living with the wild animals, going from the most glorious position that any human on earth at that time could occupy, the, the top of the top empire, now down to a field animal. And that's when Nebuchadnezzar finally figured out that no matter how high you climb on the ladder of human success, you never become sovereign. Verse 34, after this time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. My sanity returned, and I praised and worshiped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. His rule is everlasting. His kingdom is eternal. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of the earth. No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? When my sanity returned to me, so did my honor and glory and kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to the head of my kingdom with even greater honor than before. But now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. All his acts are just and true, and he is able to humble the proud. Nebuchadnezzar learned that God is sovereign. So what does it mean for us when we say that? How would we define God's sovereignty? 
Here's a way to uh, maybe express it personally, all right? To admit that God is sovereign is to humbly acknowledge that he rules creation and that we are all actually in his jurisdiction. So whether you're rebelling against God or you're submitting to God, you still live in God's domain. You're still in God's airspace. And little newsflash, there's no way out of that airspace. God is the creator of everything, the heavens and the earth. And so when you would travel around and say, is there any way that I could, I could, like I really want to be sovereign, I really want to make my own decisions in life, I really don't want to have to give an account to God, so is there any way I could step outside of God's rule and reign and do my own thing? And the answer would be technically no. However, personally, you might think you get away with it for a little while because God is so patient, he doesn't just smite you the moment that you rebel. He gives you opportunities to come back, to repent. And so some people have a temporary delusion that they really are the captain of their own destiny because they're forgetting the sovereign with the capital S, just like Nebuchadnezzar did. And I look at what God did to Nebuchadnezzar not as an act of judgment, but as an act of mercy. The worst thing that could have happened to Nebuchadnezzar would be for God to never interact with him and for Nebuchadnezzar to actually believe that he was a sovereign and to die in that state and then face judgment day and meet the sovereign in that moment. But God loved Nebuchadnezzar and gave him this opportunity to see the truth, to repent. And I believe the same is true for you. Even though you're not the king of some earthly empire, you might have in your mind that you're sort of the king of your life. And God gives you an opportunity, and he will this morning, even as we open up the scripture and talk about this, to decide that you aren't your own captain anymore, but instead you would submit to God his rightful rule over your life. So for the next few minutes, here's what I'd like to do. I want to offer you just a few kind of core theological principles. There'll be a lot of verses on the screen. We don't have time to look all of those up. Uh, but there's some opportunity, if you want to follow up and learn more after the service, you could write those down. And then what I'd like to do is apply that to our lives, to say, if it's true that God is our sovereign, then how does that change our perspective? How does that change how we act this week? So here's the first principle. He is the rightful owner of everything and everyone. Psalm 24 establishes this in such a clear and distinct way. And, and it's kind of the, the ultimate answer to the person who still sort of raises their fist up and says, God, I'm going to do it my way. Like, I'm going to use the willpower you gave me. Instead of submitting to your kingdom, I'm going to rebel. What are you going to do about it, God? Why, who, who are you to tell me what to do? Psalm 24 is a great answer. You could almost imagine a protest a human protest where people are holding signs and picketing around God's kingdom domain there or his throne room and the signs might say, I can do what I want. This is my body. This is my life. This is my future. You can't meddle in my affairs. This isn't that far from what actually happens, right? Uh, so people are out there picketing God's rule and reign. And here's the answer, Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. For he laid the earth's foundation on the seas, and he built it upon the ocean depths. The logic is God created this, therefore God owns this. And so as much as you would want to declare your own independence 
and say, I don't need God and I'm going to do it my way. The reality is everything is God's anyway, even the air that you're sucking in right now. It all belongs to him. You're living in his domain. Here's the second principle. He is freely able to exercise his almighty power over any aspect of creation. So even his own laws, like God's natural laws that he set up to govern the universe, he can usurp those anytime he wants to. That's what we call miracles. When even though the natural course of things would take something a certain direction, God can intercept that and do whatever he wants. And it's not like any human or any angel or someone out there could, could look up and say, wait, God, that's not fair. You don't have the right to do that. Of course he has the right to do that. He's the owner of all things. And his almighty power can be applied however he wants at any time that he wants. Job was one who learned this lesson. Remember, he was debating with his friends about all the struggles he was facing, and then God kind of answers his prayer, like, God, where are you? What does all this mean? And God starts to say, how can you question me? I'm the creator. And so in this whole process, it's the very end of the book of Job, Job is humbled by God, and Job finally says, I know you can do anything and no one can stop you. And that's really the ultimate admission that God's in charge and we aren't. God is the one who can do anything. No one can stop him. And so we're beholden to God. He's not beholden to us. Here's a third principle. God is independent. He doesn't need permission, power, or definition, or help from anyone. I love how God argues this case in Psalm 50. If you look in Psalm 50, he's talking about how, you know, people were, people were sort of, you know, they were out trying to offer sacrifices to make God happy, and he's like, hey, save it. Like, if your heart isn't even with this, forget it. I don't need your sacrifices. He says, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. And then I love verse 12. He said, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for all the world is mine and everything in it. That is, even if God did have a need, he wouldn't look at any of us to help him meet it. So there's nothing that God needs. There's no permission that God has to seek. There's no committee he has to get clearance from. God is sovereign. He is independent. He's able to exercise his will however he chooses. Now here's the, the fourth principle, and I think this one is pretty important to understand because this is where it hits a little closer to home. God has the right to determine our terms of engagement with him. So some people will say, well, I'm willing to give God a little something, or I'm willing to come to God on my own terms, or some people say, like, here's the way I prefer whatever church to be, or here's the exact style everything needs to be, or else I'm out. That's not how you approach God. God is the one who determines the terms upon which we approach Him, not the other way around. So we don't get to give God sort of our list of demands. Hey, God, let's make a bargain. Like, how about if I do these things for you, you'll do these other things for me? That would work if God was just your peer, if he was like a buddy. But no, God is your sovereign king. So imagine that you're walking into his throne room and all the glory is there and all the angels are there and you're approaching God's throne and you're bowing down and saying, you know, Lord, master, ruler, whatever you want for my life, you're my owner, you're my king. That's how we approach God. Psalm 24, just kind of following up that logic of the earth being the Lord's and everything in it, the psalmist then explains this. So everything belongs to God. Then look at verse 3. Who may climb the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Only those whose hands and hearts are pure, who do not worship idols and never tell lies. 
they will receive the Lord's blessing and have a right relationship with God their Savior. Such people may seek you and worship in your presence, O God of Jacob. If you're not willing to come to God on his terms, then don't bother coming. Don't apply. Because God is the sovereign. He's the one that determines how this relationship will work. Now you say, wait a minute, that puts us all at kind of a risk here, doesn't it? Like if God is sovereign and he's not accountable to anyone else, he doesn't take orders from anyone else, then that kind of means I'm like completely at his mercy. There's no appeal to somewhere else for like, wait, I don't, this, I don't agree with God. And that's true. We are 100% at God's mercy. So if you don't like what God is doing, there's nowhere that you can take it other than just directly to God. You say, wow, sovereignty, if God is sovereign, it compels me to trust God. It also makes me realize I'm powerless before God. And only to the extent that he invites me to partake with something with him, it's the only extent I have. I don't, I don't, I'm not owed anything. So what does it mean for us? First thing, God's sovereignty means that we are accountable to God. Because nothing that you do, no choice you make is outside the sphere of God's rightful control, his ownership. It means that you'll be held accountable for every aspect of your life. Hebrews 4 says that nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And so you look at your whole life and you say, there's nothing that I can do. There's not even a breath I can take that is outside of God's sovereign reign. And therefore, I'm accountable for all of those breaths. I'm accountable for what I do with my life because I don't get to be sovereign and decide the path forward. He does. And so in every respect, God's sovereignty, the more we understand it, the more we recognize we are accountable for the choices that we make. It also means, this is the second thing, that we're to be humble when we approach God. That we can't approach God with sort of a brash or demanding spirit. When we interact with God, we recognize we need him for everything. He doesn't need us for anything. And so we come to God not saying, Lord, like I've got a deal for you today. Like I might obey you a little bit if you're really nice to me. Instead, we come to God and say, Lord, my whole life is at your disposal. Anything you ask of me, of course, my answer will be yes. In Acts, uh, we looked at this a couple weeks ago when the Apostle Paul was talking to those philosophers on Mars Hill about God and introducing them to the God who is truly the God of heaven and earth. And he said, that God, the true God, can't live in a temple made by human hands. That there's nothing about God where he needs us to do anything for him. But the flip side, in him, we move and breathe and have our being. Every aspect of who you are, every molecule in your body depends on God but nothing about God depends on you. When you realize that, it's pretty humbling. It starts to put you in your proper place to say, wait, if God doesn't need me at all, then why in the world does he interact with me? That leads us to the third application here. We must be grateful to God. Every good thing that you've ever experienced, that you ever could experience, is because of his provision and his grace. The very fact that we get to know about God or approach God or pray to God or receive something from God, all of that is a grace from him. He doesn't have to do any of that, but he wants to. 
because he loves you so much. He wants you to have a seat at his table. He loves you so much that that he would invite you into his throne room, not as some sort of slave, not as some sort of mechanized robot that just does what he wants. He wants to have you as a son or a daughter in his royal family. And so every time we look to God, we say, Lord, I'm just filled with gratefulness because everything I have is from you. Even the ability I have to work, in theory, to then make something for myself, even that comes from God. The fourth principle, it means we can take comfort then in God. Because if this is true, that God is truly reigning and ruling over all of creation, then it means that he sees everything that's going on in your life. He understands every detail of who you are. He cares about you, not because he has to, but because he wants to. He even, it says in the scripture, he wishes to adopt you into his family. I think that's amazingly powerful. In John 1, it talks about how Jesus came and to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. That's what God's grace is. The fact that the sovereign ruler of the universe, the king of everything, invites you in. Even you and me, who occasionally shrug off his leadership, who might have taken his name in vain, or who might have put our own fist in the sky and said, no, God, I'll do it my way. Maybe we've even gone for days or weeks and not even thought about God. And God would have every right and every ability just to end it right now, right here. But he loves you. He loves you so much that he extends you all this mercy, all this patience, all this grace, and still invites you to, be a, to become a part of something that you had no part in making possible. It's like he's inviting you to this table when it's not like you even contribute a whole lot. I mean, God is so gracious to you and to me in allowing us to partake in what he's doing. In Romans 8, it says that God cares about us so much. He arranges things in such a way that no matter what it is that happens, he works it out for the good of those who love him. That's an amazing and powerful statement, especially when life is dark or when things aren't going your way or when you don't understand the circumstances happening around you. You can look up and say, Lord, I don't understand what's happening, but I trust you as my sovereign king. I'll let you lead my life and I won't take the reins. Instead, I'll follow you. And here's the final principle for the morning. It means, God's sovereignty means that we should rejoice in his patience. Turn with me to 2 Peter to see an example of how patient God is with each one of us. God who doesn't remember owe us anything and it's not like we did anything to sort of earn our way into his presence. He gives us an opportunity even while we're still sinners, even while we're far away from him, to come back, to repent, to acknowledge his rightful rule so that we no longer have to be a part of some rebellion on the side that will ultimately be swept away. But instead, we can join the family and be a part of God's eternal plan. In 2 Peter chapter 3, people might have been asking, why does God let all of this happen? Like, why doesn't he just end the world right now or bring, you know, the end of Revelation sounds really good where all good happens and all the evil is vanquished. What are we waiting for? Second Peter 3 verse 9, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise as some people think. 
No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed. He wants everyone to repent. So why is God waiting? Why would not God, who has all the power, who holds all the cards, just do what he wants right now and get it over with? It's because he loves you. He's being patient for you. Now, we know in the Scripture that patience won't last forever. The judgment will come. The end will come. And all the rights will be made open. All the wrongs will be made right. But until that day, we look to God and we say, thank you for being so patient with me, with my friends, with my family, with our whole world. Thank you for giving us another day, another moment, another lung full of air with which we could repent, with which we could look up to heaven and say what Adam and Eve weren't willing to say and just about every human being throughout history hasn't been willing to say, and that is, Lord, you are sovereign. I don't have to be in charge of what happens next. I will put that in your hands and I will trust you. I will surrender to you. I will obey you. That's really the call of the whole scripture. All right, so I want to send you out with a little challenge here today. It's from Acts 4.24. It's the beginning of a prayer that they prayed in the early church. Now, they were facing some pressure, some persecution, and they called a prayer meeting. And they started their prayer with this sentence. And when they heard the report, all the believers lifted up their voices together in prayer to God. O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. And then they proceeded to sort of lay out their problem lay out the request before God. I wonder how your prayer and my prayer might sound this week if we started it the way they started it. If it wasn't sort of a whiny prayer or a prayer coming out of a place where we're just sort of doing it because we have to, what if we, said, what if we believed it? Like, Lord, you are the sovereign God. You created heaven and earth. Everything is at your disposal on that basis. Now here's what I have to say. I know what would come out of my mouth Probably not a whole big laundry list of wishes and requests. First, it would be humility, right? Lord, I, I don't even deserve to be addressing you. If this is true, if that's who this is, Lord, I, I'm here before you. I want to hear from you. You don't need to hear from me. So why don't we take just a minute and let that happen in our hearts this morning to recognize God as our sovereign king, the ruler of all creation and your ruler and mine. Let's pray. Lord God, uh, thank you for your amazing grace. We didn't do anything to earn your favor or even your attention, but you so freely and lovingly give it to us. And you offer us a seat at your table in your family. If only we would give up our notion of pride and just follow you. Put our faith in you. Repent from living our own way and start walking your way. Lord, we don't want to repeat the sin of Nebuchadnezzar in our own tiny kingdom and look out at the things that we've done and think that somehow we're great or you owe us something. Rather, Lord, here and now, we want to address you for who you are. Sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth and the sea and everything that's in them. We're at your disposal. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you, and thank you so much for coming. See you next week.